0: into the mic today your familiar faces chris miles and ted jeffries but our guest of honor jay billis you know him as a former duke player and assistant coach but for us he is one of us 25 years as a broadcaster now jay first and foremost i mean had you realized you've been one of us longer than you were an actual player
1: yeah i was i I was probably one of us while i was a player maybe it was a better broadcaster when i when i was a player but uh it's good to be with you guys, Chris and Ted. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, it is weird. You know, there are a couple of things that are a little bit odd at my stage of life. One is how long I've been doing my job. And the other is, uh, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and I've, I always consider myself a Californian. And I've lived twice as long on the East Coast as I ever did on the West. But I still can't get the West Coast uh, out of my blood. I still feel like a West Coaster.
0: So when you go to watch games in the time zones, do you still feel that difference? I hear West Coast guys talk about that all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, for me, Monday night football started at uh, six o'clock and uh, you would have uh, Sunday NFL games would start at 10 a.m. Uh, out West. So, you know, you still had the rest of the day after you watched, watched games. And it was a really, really fun way to, you know, do things. Um, it, it was awesome. I just, I loved Living out west, and I love the East Coast now. The only thing, oddly, I thought when I moved east, the the hardest challenge would be, you know, it's colder out east than it is, you know, in Los Angeles where I grew up. But the thing that gets me now, uh, you know, at age fifty six, is is the middle of the summer. You know, the middle of the summer, it gets so hot and humid. um, I could I could handle it when I was in my thirties; didn't bother me. But now I'm in my mid fifties. And I'm like, I've, I've had enough of uh, sweating my tail off playing golf in the middle of middle of July. You know, I'd rather, rather go out West and play.
0: Well, certainly the NBA community dealt with that this year as everything has shifted due to COVID. So you think of schedules and what we're used to being out of whack. The NBA draft is uh, just a few days before Thanksgiving this year. And for you as being a college basketball analyst, there was no March madness, and some of the names we're familiar with, but most people that are paying attention to the NBA draft, they haven't seen James Wiseman. They might not even know the name Obi Toppin because typically guys like that make their name uh, in the NCAA tournament. And Ant-Man is certainly someone not on everyone's radar because, again, we did not have March badness. So for those guys and other guys preparing for the draft, how is this year unprecedented?
1: Boy, that's a great question. It is so different. And I, I really feel for the players that are coming out in the draft this year because they're not getting the same kind of attention. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty as they start their professional careers. They've not had the same opportunity to work out for teams. They've not had the same opportunity to interview, uh, to go to the combine. And it's not been done in a rhythmic fashion. You know, like I, I think sports have rhythms to them. And all of our rhythms were off watching the NBA playoffs in the bubble. As great as it was and as grateful as we all were to watch it, um, you know, it just it, it didn't seem right. It just seemed odd. And that's why I think ratings were down. And that's true across the board, really, with uh, with all sports, because of I think because of people's sports rhythms. But there, there's something that I'm going to be really interested in seeing. And if that's the decision making of the teams and the, the GMs and the presidents that. You know, it, I, I think that there's a chance that that the COVID thing and not being able to uh, hold as many workouts, you're really going to be going off their past performance and going off their, their your scouting that's already been done. And sometimes I think some of the combine stuff, some of the late information you get can can make things a little bit cloudier and maybe some better decisions will be made, uh, you know, doing it off of what they already have rather than than quote-unquote new information that they normally gather, because I'm not sure that's always better for decision-making. You know, reasonable minds can differ on that. I'm just going to be interested to see.
2: Jay, that was that was my question. When you talk about the teams and their decisions, you know, they, they talk about especially for seniors and guys making that decision whether they should leave after their, you know, third year or head in, you know, and head into the draft. And it's always said that, you know, scouts get a chance to see more of what you cannot do. Rather than what you can do, this COVID situation kind of benefits the players to that in that regard, as you were just talking about, um, where these scouts have not seen. They've done enough homework, but you know that last-minute decision-making um, that they would have to get involved in from the uh, draft camps. Do you think that would? Does that actually benefit the players, um, or does it work in favor of the teams?
1: Well, it kind of depends, Ted. I mean, it's a good question. It kind of depends on like sometimes it, it, it's an issue of can the player fool the NBA, you know, like, like the ones that stick around longer, it, it's not that their stock goes down because somehow they get picked apart. It's because the NBA has more time to watch them and they see, wait a minute, this guy isn't improving in areas where we hope that, that he could, or he's not as good as we thought. Um, they get exposed by staying around longer. And that's sort of what I've always said about going early. Like, I think players should leave early if, if, one, they're ready to be pros. If they've decided, I've had enough of college, I want to be a pro right now. And they're ready to start their, their next life, their, start their professional careers. But there is, there is an element of, if you're a fraud and you don't want to get found out, then you go. Um, and get in and get some money while you can, because ultimately, you're going to get exposed if you can't play. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is kind of the old Moneyball theory to me, like if you I'm sure you read the, the book Moneyball, which was primarily about baseball, but it was basically about biases that we have in scouting based upon what we see. So if you go and, and watch some guy that that has the look to him, uh, you know, great body, five tool player, and you watch him hit a 500 foot home run, even though he only hits 230 and his on base percentage is low, uh, you know, low for that kind of prospect. You're going to be uh, unduly influenced by, man. I saw that dude hit a ball out of a ballpark. I mean, he's unbelievable. Uh, it's the same. I think the same thing tends to happen in basketball that you can kind of get seduced by athleticism or, uh, you know, seduced by a workout. Like I used to go to some of these workouts, not a ton of them, but you go watch and then, and you'd be wowed by somebody and, and you'd have to, you'd have to remind yourself, this isn't five on five. Like he's got a body of work in five on five. And it didn't impress me like that workout did. And, uh, and I have I've fallen victim to it of, of sort of over, um, I mean, not, I was gonna say overhyping, but overvaluing uh, a player based upon what I saw last instead of the whole body of work, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think Joe Alexander is the guy from West Virginia University. Uh, I covered him, and he was a good basketball player at WVU, but we didn't think he'd be a lottery pick, and I think he ended up going seventh in the draft mm-hmm. because of how great he looked in workouts, and there wasn't a, a big body of work on him. He was six, seven. he could run the floor, and he could uh, shoot open shots under John Beeline, but then he went into the draft, and you're like, oh, he's athletic. We can make more out of him, and that never happened. Um, something you've been very vocal about, and you, you've used the term here just now, money, ball, value, all of these things. I think you're accurate when you talk about NBA players. But then for college players, you know, it was something that rub, rubbed me the wrong way when I covered uh, college basketball. The fact that they weren't getting paid when you see how much work is being put in, when you see how much revenue is being generated and you, you hear about the contracts. So I know you said that you believe college basketball players should get paid. I agree with you on that. But how do we do that? For instance, one of the concepts I had is okay, maybe, you know, how a a player performs and what university he attends, then when he graduates and when he's done with his eligibility, there's a certain amount of money set aside. But what do you propose as a way to compensate these players? Because I think it has to happen.
1: Yeah, and I think it will happen eventually. Uh, first it will be the NIL name, image, and likeness money. Uh, they'll be very restrictive at first, and then it'll slowly open up, and it'll lead, ultimately, I think, to players getting paid uh, down the line. Who knows the, the time frame? But, um, you know, like, it, it's a really good question, Chris, but, but one of the things that, that I think about when I, when I contemplate that question is in what other area of life do we even have to ask that? Like, like we, we don't have to ask that question with regard to it, literally anyone else. Well, how are we gonna pay everybody in this industry? How are we gonna pay coaches? How are we gonna, how are we gonna uh, deal with facility spending? You know, how are we gonna do all this? Um, it's a free market. Uh, and so to me, that's the answer is, is pay you know, each school. If you wanna pay, pay. If you don't, don't and see how it works out for you just like you would with coaches. Um, you know, nobody's requiring every school to pay their football coach, $9 million like Clemson and Alabama do, um, they can make their decisions and still compete. Uh, and the same thing's true of, I think of football, basketball, whatever, uh, any sport, um, I I would leave it up to each individual school to make their decisions on how they want to handle it because, you know, it's funny, you know, we say that, that athletes are, are, are students, um who just happen to be athletes and their students to be treated like any other student, but every non-athlete student is allowed to earn or accept whatever they, whatever they want. And it doesn't change their status as a student and non-athletes get scholarships too. So some people will say, well, athletes are already compensated. They are already paid because they get a scholarship. And you say, okay, well, what, what about the, the non-athletic scholarships? And there are, there are tons of them out there. Uh, are, are those students paid? Like if, if you have a music student, a music major that gets a scholarship, is that music major paid? And, and if it is paid, why isn't the music student on scholarship restricted in making money in his or her chosen field like athletes are? You know, we don't have amateur musicians. You know, we don't make them to say, well, they're learning their trade so that someday they can go on like, like that nonsense argument they make for athletes. But we've been doing this so long that that we're almost prisoner to the, the theory behind it. Like, well, we have to control it. We can't let it get into recruiting and we can't let it get here. We can't do this. And we've got to have guardrails. Um, and, and I don't think it's necessary. I think open it up and let everybody do what
2: they want to do.
0: Yeah, especially when you consider it's already in recruiting and that's been documented. We don't have to go down that road, TJ.
2: No, absolutely not. I was, I was just thinking when you talk about name, image and likeness, a guy like LeBron, if he made that decision and he ends up going to Duke or Kobe Bryant, uh, Zion Williamson, more Zion recently,
0: Williamson's a good one. Yeah. You know,
2: you know, you know, what type of money does he command and how does that, uh, you know, that's obviously going to work in Duke's favor uh, with regard to recruiting all the, the top players are now going to want to earn money like Zion. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like there should have to be a limit on it, but I don't think that you can once you open up the doors, nor do I feel like you should.
1: Yeah. I don't feel like you should. I think it'll all work itself out uh, easily. Like, it's funny. I I think athletics more than anything is is a meritocracy that, that the athletes understand. Um, It doesn't mean there aren't petty jealousies in that, but there are petty jealousies in anything. So sometimes I'll have coaches push back on me saying, we're going to have fights in the locker room and all this stuff. And I was like, do you guys have fights in your coaches meetings? Cause you know, the head coach makes way more than anybody else. And uh, you, you have different levels of pay for assistance. You guys all fighting fist fighting over who gets paid, what, and you know, they make it seem like, well, everything has to be equal because you know, they're all working hard and all that stuff. And I said, it's not even equal as to who gets a scholarship and, and they don't dole out playing time equally you know they don't say, well, it's unfair that that Zion is playing more than the walk-on. So we're gonna, you know, everybody's gonna start the same amount of games and play the same amount of minutes. They act like it's little league, and and look, it, it, division three is open to everybody. Division two, II, division three. If you don't want to compete, uh, you know f- where where the the revenue is, then go into division two and division three. I mean, Ohio State, if they want to play Amherst at the shoe for free admission and no TV, that's fine um that's available to you they make it seem like the athletes are the only ones that are f- forced to make this false choice of of amateurism or don't play at all uh you know the schools need to make the choice like if they don't want to play sports don't play but if you're going to play and you're going to sell the athletes for literally billions of dollars through media rights deals and apparel deals and all that um it, it's it's oh, I think it's wrong to the point of immoral to limit the athletes to a scholarship only and pretend like you're doing them some big favor
0: jay how deep is this upcoming nba draft because again it's so hard to discern you look at Lamelo ball well we haven't seen him oh we hear about all the the scouting reports and what he's looked like and how he's grown and he's taller and james wiseman we we barely saw him so from from your standpoint, how deep is this class in compared to recent classes?
1: It's deep and good and it's deep in you know, deep in good prospects, good players, some of whom could be really good. Uh, like a guy like Tyrese Maxey from Kentucky, for example, who, who could be really good. Um, but but you're not particularly sure because he, he's so young. Uh, it doesn't have a signature talent like Zion or like uh, Anthony Davis, where, you know, there's a no brainer, number one or barring injury. You're talking about, uh, a, a player who's going to be a perennial all-star and, you know, maybe someday knocking on the hall of fame door, uh, doesn't have guys like that. Um, it may have a Donovan Mitchell in there that, that we're not, you know, you think is going to be good, but you're not sure is going to be great. And He turns out to be, you should have been taken in the top three of that draft um, and was, was taken 15th. Um, and there, who knows there, there's a, probably a Draymond green in there. that's going to be a second round pick and, and winds up being an NBA all-star. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it, there are a lot of solid prospects and guys that could be very good, but there are a lot of question marks as well. And, you know, you mentioned, um, Lonzo ball or LaMelo ball. I remember when Lonzo ball came out, uh, you know, I, I thought he had the chance to be a Jason Kidd type player. And he hasn't, it hasn't panned out yet. He's been good, but he hasn't been as good as I expected. And, you know, you've had players like that, but that's the way the draft has been forever. Um, and it's, it doesn't matter whether it's the NFL draft and they get five years to look at those players or the NBA draft, you know, th- these players are really well scouted by really smart professionals and it's hard to get it exactly right. It is really hard to get it exactly right, especially with them being so young.
2: Jay, we, we're all dealing with this uh, COVID-19 situation. Uh, pro sports now, college sports, uh, have been trying to manage their programs and their sports uh, teams uh, during this time. As this basketball season ramps up, how confident are you that as we are approaching what everybody is talking about as our surge, that basketball will be able to make it through the season, not having the luxuries of the NBA to create a real bubble um, to keep players from being 18, 19, 20 year old, you know, student athletes who will, you know, go out and be kids.
1: Yeah, Ted, that's a really good question. I mean, I, my confidence level um, ebbs and flows. So uh, earlier, uh, in, in the COVID process, I was pretty confident that we were going to be able to get a season in, but, but still, uh, concerned that it's an indoor sport. There are way more games than in football, uh, and, and a lot more travel. So there and in smaller rosters that if you do have an outbreak within a program, it, it's going to compromise the, the whole team in a way that it, it might not compromise an entire football team. Because uh, football has done a pretty good job of keeping position groups separated and, and offense and defense, all that. They, they've done a, overall a really good job in that uh, and still have had some problems. You know, we're going to I'm sure we'll have game postponements and cancellations like football. Um, but and we're, we're going to start, I think, on November 25th with a few sort of isolation or semi bubble environments, uh, the one down in Orlando there's going to be another in Asheville that like the Maui Invitational is going to be played in Asheville, North Carolina, stuff like that for non-conference games. Um, I'm, I have the most concern when we get to conference play and, you know, just like we're in ACC country, all of us. Uh, so, you know, just like Syracuse flying down to Miami for one game and flying home doesn't seem like it's going to work all season long. Uh, you know, you'd like to see, can they get multiple games on a road trip? Uh, if that's possible, because most of them are going to be in, I believe, will be in um, uh, sort of non in-person classes, like they'll, they'll be taking online courses. Uh, Duke, for example, is staying in a hotel. Their, their basketball team's in, a, in, in that campus hotel. So they're not even in their dorm rooms. Um, they're staying in a hotel. Uh, so they're kind of isolated now. Um, but if this gets really bad, like some of the experts are saying, uh, I think basketball is at a little bit of a, a little bit of risk um, for the regular season uh, of having a really bumpy ride. I'm just I'm hopeful uh, and I'm not worrying about it because there's nothing I can do about it. That's been the, the weirdest thing about this is normally, you know, you are planning and trying to put things together and there's really no way to plan. And so I was talking to one of my bosses today and said, hey, you know, we're thinking about this, we're thinking about that. And I said, look, I'll do whatever you say. Because And I'll go wherever you say go because I wouldn't want to be making the decisions you're having to make now with so much uncertainty. I mean, you can't even plan. Uh, so I, I have a lot, of, a lot of respect for all the different uh, schools, conferences, you know, media companies, whatever, that are trying to figure this out because uh, there's no playbook for this one.
0: When I hear you say that, and I, I remember the moment um, that March Madness was it, – it's just something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I'm at work and I'm preparing for a show. They say, no March Madness. It's not happening this year. And I'm like, okay, how serious is this? How much of a concern, how big is that thought process going forward with the planning? Like you were saying, you're just planning for tomorrow, but everyone you're involved with, I know that has to be looming as a, a, a dark storm above everyone's head.
1: Yeah, it, it's really kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a attitudinal or mental health challenge, if you will, to uh, prepare for something that may be shaky, frankly. So you got you to gotta kind of prepare as if everything's going to go forward as normal, uh, but there is no normal anymore. Um, and I think we're all getting used to some of this or all of this, um, but it's an uncomfortable uh, feeling to be used to this. Uh, so, you know, you just have to have to do the best you can. But but your point about, you know, remembering sort of how surreal it was when all when everything got kind of canceled. Um, you know, we, I, I look back on that a fair amount that, that we boy, sports sports was really behind the curve on a lot of this. We, we were late to this party and people like to say, well, Rudy Gobert was the tipping point. And I'm like, no, he wasn't the, the you know, all these schools were shutting down. And and had been shut down by the time they made the decision to pull the plug on the ACC tournament, the Big East tournament, Big Ten, you name it. And and not until later on did they make the decision about the NCAA tournament. So we were we were kind of hanging on, thinking that things were might get better and we could handle it. And and you know the Ivy League was first and and basically said, nope, this isn't going to happen, and we're, we're shutting it down now. So a lot of a lot of a lot of America, uh, American sport was was last to the party when the rest of America was uh, was uh, pretty far ahead.
2: When you talk about the NCAA tournament, and if basketball is able to make it through, and we all remain hopeful that these teams, you know, get by uh, pretty much unscathed uh, and can make it to a tournament, Coach K has been a proponent here for allowing, because of this unique time, for allowing more teams to get into the tournament um how feasible do you see that uh that proposed plan and how do you think that that would work overall basically having regional bubbles uh where you have a lot more teams that are involved in the tournament
1: well there are two things i love about it one i love the sentiment of of everyone being involved in a year like this uh i think that's a that's a wonderful sentiment and, and I, I like the idea that the NCAA has to be really flexible this year to allow teams to do things that they weren't allowed to do before. Like, for example, in these pre-conference tournaments, the Maui Invitational, whatever, uh, they should drop the, the requirement that only one team per conference can play in one of those, those MTE, multiple team events. Uh, they, that, that should be waived this year. Uh, who cares if they're in the same league, if they can get really good games in, get the games in. Uh, but coach K's proposal, although I love the sentiment, I think is unworkable. Um, there's no way for, it, for us to, to have essentially 300 plus teams or 353 teams in division one. We're not going to be able to have a tournament of that size. It wouldn't work. If, if we were even able to pull it off, it would be far better to have every conference play their conference tournament and have their champion and go like we normally would. Um, uh, that's just, that would just be easier, cleaner. And I think the, the right thing to do. I mean, how would we structure it? I'm sure we could figure it out, but you certainly wouldn't want the number one seed to play uh, you know, team number 353, you know, you'd have to have buys and all that stuff. And, and I don't, I don't think it would be worthwhile just to say that everybody got in the tournament. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. I mean, I, I, haven't really talked to coach K about it. Um, you know, a lot of people like the idea. Uh, I'm not crazy about it. That doesn't mean the idea is wrong, but I do think it's unworkable, uh, especially in a COVID environment. I don't see how we're going to travel all these teams, put them together and, and think that that's going to go well. Uh, I think we'd be very fortunate to get a 64 team tournament off and, and done right.
0: When, <laughs> Every time I hear Coach K's name, I think about the first time I saw him and he was already this mythical creature, this Hall of Famer, this national champion. But that wasn't the case when you first met him. But this is a DMV podcast. So that team you were on and the team that you were a coach uh, or part of as an assistant coach. There are so many players from our area, uh, namely my colleague Grant Hill, who's one of the coolest guys you'll ever meet. But going back, I mean, Tommy Amaker, uh, Danny Ferry, uh, Johnny Dawkins, Kenny Blakeney, Brian Davis. I mean, when I say all of those names and you think about the transplant from the DMV area down to uh, Duke, was that a part of the conversation when you were there? Like, did those guys ever talk about it? Did, Did you guys? feel that that energy that came from this area with such immense basketball talent. Oh,
1: no question. And, and also Billy King was on our team. Yes. Uh, yes. Sterling, Virginia. Uh, yeah. We talked about the DC area all the time, especially Dawkins, you know, Dawkins went to Johnny, went to Mackin high school, Mackin Catholic. And uh, and he actually played with Dominic Presley that went to Boston college and Dominic and I were teammates at the uh, Portsmouth Invitational. Uh, he passed away many, many years ago, but, but, that had to be the, the Presley Dawkins backcourt at Mac, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, Chris. I, I think that had to be the fastest backcourt in high school history, unless Usain Bolt somehow played somewhere. <laughs> um, those dudes could motor. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of talk about DC, um, uh, Northern Virginia, all the great players, uh, and all that. And there was a great, it was a ton of pride and. I mean, we used to laugh about it all the time. Like, like Johnny, there was a movie back then called DC Cab. uh, I think starred Mr. T. Now, Mr. T was in it. Yeah, that movie sucked. But, but Johnny Dawkins thought it was like (laughs) on the Waterfront or The Godfather because of that DC in the title. So he was always tied DC Cab. And come on, man. So so if it was LA Cab, you know, you wouldn't have liked it. (laughs) You know, like come on, man, that movie sucks. But but it, yeah, there was a ton of pride uh, of, of the DC area, the DMP.
2: Jay, when you talk about Coach K, he, he you know, you know, produced a lot of great talent out of Duke. Uh, he's accomplished so much, and he's imparted wisdom to you guys that I'm sure, um, like most coach, most great coaches do. What are some of the best lessons that you've learned from Coach K that you've kept with you and always kind of? rewind it in your mind as a reminder of, uh, you know, your times and being taught by one of the greatest coaches in the game.
1: Yeah, I I think, I think Ted, uh, sort of a lot of the lessons about, about preparation, about being persistent in pursuing, um, you know, your goals and, and trying to win and, you know, really fighting through things. And then, but also sort of the idea of um, next play, Like, like you got to move on from what just happened, no matter what it was, we win, we lose, you know, you turn the ball over, you have a steal and a dunk or what, you got to move on and make the next play and put that uh, behind you. You know, we can, we can parse through it later and and learn from it, but we got to, we got to move on. Uh, And I use that phrase in my life a lot, next play. But, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm biased, I guess, for coach K uh, that I think he, he's the best that's ever done it but a lot of it has to do with the longevity of it, that, that he's, he's been doing this at Duke for I think 40 years now, and he's been coaching for 45 as a head coach. Um, Now, whether it was, you know, Terry Holland at Virginia or, or Dean Smith at North Carolina or Lefty Drizell at Maryland or all these great coaches, especially back in the day when, when we played, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with how long they went because, uh, you know those coaches were so great all of them and uh, and so it's it even sounds odd it's almost like the the argument about mj or lebron you know you get so passionate arguing about it and you're like really like there one versus two we're gonna argue like this and so when people say you know is he the greatest ever all that he's in the conversation at least and, and that's that's pretty damn good and and so I, I feel very fortunate not only to have played for him But but especially to have played for him and have had this long of my life where he's still uh, coaching where I played, like my relationship with him. And then I believe with the university um, and and all and all of our teammates and guys that played there uh, with, you know, that I played with and came after is is profoundly different than it would have been if he'd coached there for 10 years. And then gone to the NBA or gone to another school or something like that, that, that is the most, you know, that happens most often, uh, with coaches.
0: Jay in again, when, when you meet coach K, there's this certain energy that, you know, you're amongst greatness. And some people just have that, whether they achieve the greatness or not. Um, another guy that I feel like when I saw him coaching high school basketball, I thought this is a college coach. And it's going to happen soon. Kevin Keats was that guy. Now, I don't know yeah. if he's going to be a great college coach or not. i happy to see him on, in his second job coaching in the NCAA now at um, NC State. But is there a coach that that you think is on their way to greatness that maybe is overlooked? That's someone that is doing a great job that you're like, hey, keep an eye out for this particular head coach.
1: Boy, there's so many of them, um, like so many of the young guys, but, but young is, is a relative term now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it used to be a a coach could get a job in his late twenties, early thirties and, and establish a, a career in, in basketball. Now, some of these guys are hanging on so long that, that young guys can't break in anymore. And, you know, you're, you're an assistant way longer, or you have to, you have to take a, you have to take a lower level job where it's really hard to win. And, uh, and it's really hard to, you know, to kind of move your way up. Um, one of the guys, and I think he's gone beyond up and comer is Chris Mack, that I think is the real deal at Louisville. Um, you know, Chris obviously did a great job at, you uh, uh, at Xavier and, and played there and everything and, and coached with Skip Prosser. But, but I, I'm a big fan of Chris. I, I think he's going to be going to be one of the next great ones. Um, but we're going to see a lot of turnover. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the guys you're talking about, like coach K Roy Williams, uh, uh, Tom is a little bit younger, but, but they're all, you know, they're sixties, seventies, Jim Boeheim, Rick Pitino, you name it. Uh, uh, Leonard Hamilton, you know they're not going to be able to go on that much longer so we you're looking at some end dates coming up and how the transitions handled and who replaces those guys is going to be really important as to how those programs um you know can sustain excellence going forward because it's really hard you guys know it's really hard to to sustain it um uh, and there's no there's no rule book for that one either. Like do you hire somebody in the family to go outside the family? And most of the ones that established the family weren't in the family when they first got there. Uh, so it's kind right. of a, it's a really hard challenge.
2: Jay being uh, a DMV based, uh, you know, podcast, uh, this area lost an icon basketball, lost an icon and John Thompson. Uh, can you share your thoughts about the effects that he has had uh, on the game of basketball, and you know what he has done for Georgetown University.
1: John Thompson uh, was a, a giant in the game, and was so far ahead of of his peers in in issues of social justice. I, I think when I was first coming up as a broadcaster, I thought that the two of the coaches that I looked up to most were were John Thompson and John Chaney. And men who got it uh, on, a, on a different level that were, were doing way more than coaching basketball, uh, they were fighting social battles and fighting uh, uh, stereotypes uh, of them, their program and their players, uh, and uh, weren't afraid to step forward and say, this is wrong. Um, but, you know, you look back on, on that era in the, in the late 70s through the 80s into the mid 90s, when both those 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 men, great men were were coaching and winning at, at such a high level. And and really how misunderstood things were. And and we weren't evolved, I think, as a, as a society as we are now, to even ask the questions we're asking. And that's profoundly sad. Um, but they like John Thompson, I, I used to love listening to him talk. Uh, and and I thought it was great. Like I, I used to go on his radio show every once in a while. And I always, you know, like you always kind of tease him about about whoever thought you would be a member of the media with <laughs> as much as the media thought you gave them a hard time. Um right. but, but yeah, all that Hoya paranoia stuff, like the the one thing that I remember, and I'm sorry to ramble on about this, but one thing I remember is the, the image that that some people had of Georgetown. Was so foreign to who those guys were. Like I, I knew Pat. I met Patrick Ewing in high school, and uh, and you know through friends got to know him a little bit. And I thought, what a great guy. Um, you know, like when he blocked your shot or dunked on you, you know, and, and might snarl a little bit or have a furrowed brow. Like Patrick Ewing is as good a guy as you're ever going to meet. Michael Jackson and uh, David Wingate, Reggie Williams, all those guys were unbelievably good guys and just great basketball players. Um, uh, and, and the thing that they were as a team, they were incredibly smart and disciplined. So they, they had a, they, they might've had a reputation as, you know, Hoya paranoia, but everybody was scared of them and all that. But it wasn't like they were physically, um, uh, you know, bullgarden people, they would trap, um, they were always in the right spot and they had a, an eraser back there to block your shot. Um, it it was, it was something else to watch those guys. they were they were magnificent and and I think you know the 85 teams, one of the great teams of all time really. And, and if not for a perfect game by Villanova, I think they'd go down as one of the top five teams, I think to ever play.
2: I agree with everything you just said. The only thing that I would make exception to is when the, 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 when they added Michael Graham to the program, that was the real physical, you know uh, physically demanding, player that georgetown had that's the only exception i would say to your statement
1: intimidating intimidating as a dunker and all that but but people forget he really didn't play that much um right. that year that was 84 when they won in in seattle if i remember right and mm-hmm. and so he would you know he he came in was a you know he had a had a, a bunch of dunks he might have scored 10 12 points in the final but during the course mm-hmm. of the season he really didn't play all that much um, right. uh, but man, that, those guys were such studs. I remember, I think it was 1985, um, you know, the year they lost a Villanova in the final game. Um, we started the season 14 and 0, and we won a home game and we, we were, no, Georgetown was number one and we were number two in the country. And the uh, the Cameron crowd started chanting, we want Georgetown. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not sure we do. <laughs> like i'd have to guard ewing i'm not i'm not sure we do you might want to rethink that one
2: right right
0: uh that's incredible um and you know tj we'd be remiss if we got on this podcast and started talking john thompson and didn't send out our wishes and our love to uh jt3 and also good friend uh ronnie thompson and if he's listening at any point man we love you ronnie uh, i've known him for a few years now and he's um uh, You know, friend of friend of this group and and family uh, to to some of us as well. But speaking of which, the brotherhood at Duke, uh, we we had a discussion on one of our shows one day, Jay, about golf. And apparently Grant Hill thinks he's, you know, he's better than Chuck. Apparently he's better than everybody's better
1: than Chuck. Everybody's (laughs) better than Charles Barkley.
0: So where are you on this, man? Are you are you better than uh, than at Golf?
1: I'm way better than Granite golf. Yeah. I'm way better. <laughs> it's not close.
0: Yeah. I had to, I had to find out the answer to that because apparently there's a hierarchy there. Well, I don't, you know, the funny part, I don't
1: know. I, I play with, uh, with some of the guys, um, some of my former teammates. Um, and, you know, most of them don't have, you know, they're still in basketball or coaching or something. So don't have as much time to play uh, as I do. Um, but I can't remember what year it was. It was the same year that coach K was kind of messing with the Lakers during the summertime that the Lakers had offered him, uh, the job and, uh, Mark Allery, uh, lives up in, in, in DC in Bethesda and as a member at congressional country club. So he had set up a round of golf with, with, um, him, me, uh, Johnny Dawkins and David Henderson. And so, uh, when we got to the first tee, uh, Johnny says, um, says I haven't played a round of golf in over a year. Like, so we're haggling over strokes on the bet. And, <laughs> uh, and, you know, congressional is a really difficult golf course. So we want, I, I think I wound up saying, all right, well, I'll give you six strokes aside. Uh, so 12 strokes for the, the, the 18, six per nine. And Johnny wound up shooting like in the low eighties. And I'm like, You have not played <laughs> in a year. He and hustled, shot in the yeah. low eighties. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so I, I happened to be playing at his club about a month later and I was hitting balls on the range and the pros, the pro comes out and says, Hey, how did Johnny play at congressional? I said, he played great. Like he cleaned me out. He shot like an 82 or something. And, uh, and he said, man, he's been here hitting balls every day for the last 60 days or whatever it was. And I called him I said, you MF, like you, you hustled me. And he said, he said, I didn't lie. He goes, I did not play around the golf. I hit balls every day. But I did not play around golf. And I'm like, yeah, that is such that was so, so that's total DC stuff. Uh one, thinking DC Cab is a good movie, and two, hustling, hustling a yeah. teammate of yours and a brother uh, on the on the golf course. So much for the brotherhood. It's all and about my, getting my your brother's Keeper,
0: I guess not. Yeah. And my brother's wallet was it. it
1: was, that, that's all it was. <laughs> all
0: right, here comes the most important question of the day. And unless TJ has something else, the final one: Ti or Jeezy, which Jeezy. one is it, Jay?
1: Jeezy. Oh, it's Jeezy. Ti is pretty good, but that, that's going to be. Uh, I, I was. I was very impressed that Jeezy called him out. Uh, and said anywhere, anytime, but, um, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge cheesy fan. Obviously both are great, but I'm a huge cheesy fan.
2: Chris, on that note, I don't think we can hold the Twitter master, the four year starter, uh, Mr. ESPN analyst, uh, and great friend of, of ours. Uh, Jay, thanks for being on the show. We know, as you always say, you got to go to work.
1: I got to go to work, baby. Chris, Ted, <laughs> great being with you. Thank you guys. Big fan uh, of you guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks for stepping to the mic, appreciate you. Thanks, Jay. Good to be with you guys.